Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Yacht Talk, Hacking the Boards. I'm Ben. And I'm Yaakov. And today we are bringing you episode 15 on pericardial diseases and cardiomyopathies. Today's episode is a little different since we're wrapping up cardiovascular content and want to make sure that we cover all the relevant deets for your success. So the first and shorter part of the episode will be related to pericardial diseases, mainly inflammatory and constrictive pericarditis and their complications. The second and longer half of the episode will be on the three major cardiomyopathies, specifically dilated, hypertrophic, and restrictive. As you'll see, these topics connect back to a lot of concepts we've already covered. So get ready for some blasts from the past. Ooh, were those some time? time Those, yeah, some some time travel noises. I figured. I figured that was really good. All right, let's jump into our first case. So let's say a 50-year-old male comes into the ED with sharp substernal chest pain radiating to the back, worsened by swallowing and deep breathing, and improved when he sits up. Three days ago, he had a cough and sore throat, which are now resolved. He has a temperature of 100 and a heart rate of 98 beats per minute. First off, what's the term we use to describe the kind of chest pain that this patient has? So this sounds like pleuritic chest pain, which is that substernal chest pain worse with deep breathing and better when sitting up and leaning forward. Sometimes it radiates to the back. Great. Is that the only part of this presentation which makes you concerned for pericarditis? No. His recent history of what sounds like an upper respiratory infection makes me think that this is viral pericarditis, which is characteristically preceded by a viral illness. The low-grade fever and tachycardia are also consistent with an inflammatory process. Great. That's a perfect analysis. And other than viral, what are some other causes of pericarditis that they like to test on? A big one is post-MI, which we touched upon in episode three. You also have to look out for lupus pericarditis in a young female with something like fatigue and knee pain. And then also uremia in acute or more commonly chronic kidney failure when someone has a BUN greater than 60. Awesome. Now let's get into physical exam. So what's the characteristic auscultation finding in pericarditis? A friction rub, which they'll describe in a few different ways. I've seen a diastolic squeaking sound or a superficial scratchy sound. That's very fun to me. If you add, like, that's like a great auscultation. I agree. I agree. Such fun words to describe listening to someone's heart. And what do we expect on labs for someone with pericarditis? Well, leukocytes are actually often normal, so that's not really going to be helpful. And other labs aren't usually presented in these cases, except as like distractors or if there's a secondary cause. Troponins are often elevated, but that wouldn't really be useful in the case of a post-MI pericarditis, for example. Yeah. Overall, other diagnostic findings are going to be more helpful. So which tests do these patients usually get? EKG and echo. Great. And what's the characteristic EKG finding for someone with pericarditis? Some combination of either diffuse PR depressions and or ST elevations diffusely. And doesn't one of the etiologies not cause EKG abnormalities in pericarditis? So actually uremic pericarditis does cause EKG abnormalities, but not the typical, you know, diffuse PR depression or ST elevations. Gotcha. And why do we get an echo in general for patients that were concerned for pericarditis? So we want to check for a pericardial effusion. And what's our biggest concern in a patient with a possible pericardial effusion? So we don't want the patient to develop cardiac tamponade, which can happen in the setting of pericarditis. All right. So let's say we do all the tests we talked about and they're as expected. 
and we diagnose our stable 50-year-old with pericarditis, what do we do for him? So we would give him NSAIDs and usually colchicine to reduce inflammation. So let's say we give him those medications, but he comes back three days later with a blood pressure of 90 over 50, and a physical exam reveals muffled heart sounds and JVD of eight centimeters. What does that sound like, Ben? Sounds like nothing good, Yakov. I'll tell you that. I agree. I think this patient is having some cardiac tamponade. All right. And let's have a throwback Thursday to our shock lecture. What is cardiac tamponade? Uh, first off, Yakov, it is not Thursday. I, I know, Ben, it's not Thursday, but our listeners don't know that, right? So let's just say it's Thursday. Okay. Anyway, Yakov, cardiac tamponade is when fluid accumulation increases pericardial pressure above diastolic ventricular pressure. Yikes, and that sounds pretty scary. So what's the classic presentation of tamponade? That would be Beck's triad of hypotension, muffled or distant heart sounds, and jugular venous distension, all of which were present in this patient. Great. And what's the other classic physical exam finding in tamponade, and what's the pathophysiology there? So that would be pulsus paradoxus, which is not a Harry Potter spell, it turns out. Mm. But yeah, I know but is in fact a greater than 10 millimeters of mercury drop in systolic blood pressure during inspiration. Basically, inspiration increases right ventricular filling and the right ventricle under the pressure from the pericardial fluid bulges into the left ventricle. So that decreases the already diminished left ventricular preload and thus cardiac output during inspiration. Wow, uh, that sounds like a dangerous and interesting mechanism. And what's the characteristic EKG finding for tamponade? That would be electrical alternans, which describes oscillating QRS amplitudes beat to beat, which is believed to be caused by the heart literally swinging in the fluid. And how do we treat this patient? Emergency pericardiosynthesis. Nice. Let's move on to a special form of pericarditis that gets its very own case. Wow, that is special. Very. So we have a 60-year-old male, past medical history of type 2 diabetes and mitral valve surgery, who comes in with lower extremity and abdominal swelling. His vitals are normal. Exam shows a JVD to 12 centimeters, ascites, and severe lower extremity edema. Chest x-ray reveals spotty calcifications along the heart border. What kind of pericarditis is this? So this sounds like constrictive pericarditis for sure. There is not a lot that can cause spotty calcifications or even a ring of calcifications around the heart. That is very true. What puts this patient at risk for developing this condition? So anyone with a history of cardiac surgery can be, uh, is at increased risk for constrictive pericarditis. Right. Let's say instead of the mitral valve repair, I mentioned that this patient immigrated from China three years ago. What would the etiology be there? So there, the etiology for constrictive pericarditis would be tuberculosis, since the question uh, is essentially hinting at an endemic area. Okay, and what if instead of either of those things, the patient had a history of lymphoma? So in that case, the question stem would likely be hinting at radiation therapy to treat the patient's lymphoma uh, being the cause of pericarditis. So radiation therapy in that case would, would be the cause. Right, nice catch. Back to our patient, how does the constrictive pericarditis explain his presentation? So it usually presents as right heart failure, which explains the JVD, ascites, and edema. And just like in tamponade, the pericardial pressure is increased, but the pericardium is also inelastic. So the low pressure right ventricle is compressed over time. Okay. And what's another similarity between this and tamponade? 
So constrictive pericarditis also can cause pulsus paradoxus. Uh, counter cue though, what is a respiratory pathology that can cause pulsus paradoxus? Ooh, that would be severe asthma, but from a slightly different mechanism that we can cover in the future. Perfect. Yeah, great question. What's a physical exam finding more specific to constrictive pericarditis? So they'll typically mention a pericardial knock, which they like to describe as a mid-diastolic sound on test questions. Perfect. And what are two other kind of buzzwordy findings they like to throw into questions about constrictive pericarditis? Sometimes they'll mention Kussmaul's sign, which is when there's no inspiratory decline in JVD. And they'll also mention prominent X and Y descent on jugular venous pressure tracings. That sounds overly complicated. And that's exactly why we're going to move on. <laughs> Great. So it's time to tackle some cardiomyopathies, which have come up several times already throughout the CV episodes. Do you want to take us away, Yak? Absolutely. Let's jump into cardiomyopathies. So let's say we have a 30-year-old female who comes in with dyspnea on exertion and lower extremity swelling. She's otherwise healthy, except for a mild cold that she had two weeks ago. That doesn't really sound relevant, Jakob. Yeah, no, it's, it's not relevant. Just thought you should know she had a cold two weeks ago. Uh, anyway, vials are normal and exam shows basal or crackles, an audible S3, an elevated JVD, and two plus edema. So Ben, what do you think is going on here? Well, it turns out I lied and that the cold is super relevant. Agreed. Sounds to me like this unfortunate young woman has dilated cardiomyopathy, which we're going to call DCM. Uh, and that would be from viral myocarditis in, in this case. That's spot on. So what gives you that idea? Well, as you might recall from our heart failure episode, the eccentric hypertrophy in DCM causes decreased contractility, resulting in biventricular systolic heart failure. That presents with signs of volume overload in the lungs and systemic circulation, such as in this patient. Great. And for bonus points, what's the classic virus that causes dilated cardiomyopathy? Coxsackie B. Coxsackie B. That's exactly right. Um, that was really bad. I'm so sorry. It's know? not me. You have to apologize to you. It's the listeners. That's true. Sorry, guys. Sorry, everyone. Um, moving on. What are a few other causes of DCM that, that test writers like to test on? So Chagas disease is one. If the patient just returned from South America, and also has other dilated organs like their esophagus or colon. Uh, then there's alcohol, which can cause DCM, uh, and that's reversible with cessation. There's peripartum, which is really more of an OB-GYN topic, uh, and chem chemotherapy drugs like doxorubicin or trastuzumab can classically cause it. Great, that's a great list. Though the funny thing is that idiopathic is technically the most common cause of DCM. What's a physical exam finding you might expect in DCM other than heart failure sequelae? So that would be mitral regurge, which we actually mentioned in our valvular episode. And that happens because of the stretched mitral annulus. Great. Uh, and Ben, can you perform the murmur for us? No, no, I will not, Yako. Oh, man. All right. Understood, but disappointed. What will the heart look like on imaging? So chest x-ray will generally show cardiomegaly and pleural effusions. And echo will show dilation of all four compartments and reduced ejection fraction. Nice. And what do we do for these patients? You kind of treat it like regular old heart failure, regardless of cause. So that would be diuretics and guideline directed medical therapy, which we covered. Worst case scenario, some patients even require heart transplants. All right. And as an honorable mention, we're going to quickly touch on a low yield cardiomyopathy that's related to DCM. Ben, what is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy and what causes it? 
So Takotsubo or stress-related cardiomyopathy is acute heart failure as a result of a stressful situation. The classic presentation is an older woman who comes in after learning of a new cancer diagnosis or her partner passing away, for example. Gotcha. And any other notes on Takotsubo? Yeah. So the, the buzzword on echo is apical ballooning of the left ventricle, although all chambers can be dilated. And it only requires supportive care since it usually resolves spontaneously. Nice. So now we're going to shift gears to another pathology that uh, comes up quite a bit on tests. So Ben, take it away. So we have a 25-year-old who comes into the ED after passing out while shooting some hoops. Over the past year, she has had episodes of palpitations and dyspnea on exertion. Vitals are normal. An exam reveals a three out of six systolic murmur at the left sternal border, which increases when the patient stands. Ooh, I'm actually having some deja vu from you uh, saying those physical exam findings. That's actually because, Jakob, we've seen a very similar case before in our syncope episode. Oh my gosh, that must be it. Yeah, I know. What pathology do you think we have here? So this sounds like hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, aka hokum. How can you tell? So the classic presentation is syncope on exertion in a young person, and they love to include that they were playing sports at the time. Oh yeah. And what's uh, hokum's pathophys? Usually it's due to genetic causes, specifically autosomal dominant inheritance. And with that, the intraventricular septal muscular layer grows too thick and it actually bulges over the left ventricle's outflow tract. That's why getting a good family history is particularly important in these patients. Absolutely. And it's also why the symptoms are worse with exertion. So since the outflow obstruction is worse when there's less preload, the smaller stroke volumes when there's less filling time uh, during exercise actually lead to inadequate circulation. Which is why they call it a dynamic left ventricular outflow obstruction. We've really put the whole puzzle together on this one, especially since we already covered a lot of these hemodynamics in episode nine on maneuvers. That's true. We definitely did. And our listeners should tune into that episode if they haven't already. Briefly though, how do the main maneuvers affect the murmur intensity? Dang, I was really hoping you wouldn't mention the maneuvers. I do not like those at all. But since you mentioned it, Valsalva or standing will decrease preload and therefore increase the murmur in hokum and hand grip or squatting will decrease the murmur. Perfect. You nailed it. What kind of heart failure can hokum cause over time? Over time, hokum can cause diastolic heart failure since the left ventricle is not filling properly due to septal hypertrophy. And this means that the patient might also have signs of volume overload and S4 on exam. What will cardiac diagnostics show? So an EKG often has nonspecific findings like T-wave abnormalities and, and left ventricular hypertrophy. Echo will show septal hypertrophy, left ventricular outflow obstruction, and left atrial dilation. Counter cue though, to which arrhythmia does this last structural change that I mentioned, the left atrial dilation, predispose the patient? Ah, so that is going to predispose HOCAM patients to AFib. Nice. Which medication would we use to treat this patient? So since she's symptomatic, we'd give her beta blockers such as metoprolol, which decrease heart rate and allow more filling time and decrease contractility to keep more volume in the left ventricle at baseline. Calcium channel blockers like diltiazem are used as second line agents. Which medications should be avoided in hokum? Really anything that reduces preload, especially nitrates. And what's another intervention that might help a patient with risk factors for sudden cardiac death? So since hokum is actually a risk factor for developing ventricular tachycardias, 
Some patients with family or personal history of ventricular tachycardia will have an AICD placed. Great. And with that, on to our last case of the episode. All righty. So let's say a 75-year-old female comes in with lower extremity edema, fatigue, and dyspnea over the last three months. Exam reveals thickened skin, JVD of 8 centimeters, distended abdomen, and 3-plus edema. Labs are notable for anemia and proteinuria. So Ben, what do we think this patient has? Hmm, Sounds like amyloidosis to me, since she has classically thick or sometimes waxy skin, along with renal and cardiac involvement. Nice. And what kind of cardiomyopathy does amyloidosis cause? That would be restrictive. And what is restrictive cardiomyopathy? So restricted cardiomyopathy is when deposits within the myocardium cause the ventricle to become stiff over time. And what are some causes other than amyloidosis that can also lead to restrictive cardiomyopathy? Pretty much anything with these deposits. So sarcoidosis, hemochromatosis, or scleroderma are the classic ones. Can you explain some of the physical exam findings that uh, I mentioned in the question stem? Sure. So based on the JVD, ascites, and edema, it sounds like the patient has right heart failure, which is the typical manifestation of restrictive cardiomyopathy. And would this cause HEF-REF or HEF-PEF? And additional question, how would that show up on our patient's echo? So restrictive causes HEF-PEF because of decreased filling volumes. So we would see concentric hypertrophy of the ventricular walls with a normal ejection fraction. Awesome. And with that, we wrap up episode 15. We really hope you found it helpful. And thanks for tuning in.